blessing of coffee. All right, well, welcome. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Psalm 21. Psalm 21. Before I read, let me just pray for us this morning. Lord, we do thank you just for the the fellowship, the camaraderie of men uh, gathering together, all uh, trusting you, delighting in your revelation, and just seeking to walk faithfully. Um, And we pray, Lord, that our time this morning as we uh, look to your word from various angles, both from the psalm and then elsewhere about what your church is, that you would just use this time to mature us that we might be faithful and glorifying to you. We pray, Lord, that we would be enthusiastic and encouraged with regard to your church and just eager to serve it uh, faithfully, diligently, uh, and with understanding. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Psalm 21. For the choir director, a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king will be glad, and in your salvation how greatly he will rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with the blessings of good things. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you place upon him, for you have made him most blessed forever. You make him joyful with gladness in your presence. And here we come to the centerpiece of the psalm. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will devour them. Their offspring you will destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. Though they intended evil against you and devised a plot, they will not succeed, for you will make them turn their back. You will aim with your bowstrings at their faces." Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. So obviously the the purpose of the psalm as a whole is to praise the Lord. Does this sound as bad to you as it does to me? Yeah, it's pretty bad. Does it help if I move somewhere? Am I like standing in the wrong spot? Yeah. Better to fix this now than have to listen to this for an hour. Uh huh. I see what you're doing. All right, is that better now? A little better? Okay, good. I'm glad we fixed that. Okay, so Psalm 21. The purpose of the psalm uh, clearly is to praise the Lord, right? To call people to praise the Lord, as seen first in the opening verse and then also in the closing verses. Look at verse 1. O Lord, in your strength the king will be glad, and in your salvation how greatly he will rejoice. So praising the Lord. Look at the last verse, verse 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. So verse 1, the king rejoices in the Lord's deliverance. And in verse 13, the people rejoice in the Lord's deliverance through the king. So the Lord delivers the king. The people in the last verse are delivered as beneficiaries of the king's deliverance. And this praise is specifically for the Lord's strength as it's manifested in two things. In verses 2 through 6, it's manifested in the Lord's exaltation of his vice-regent on earth, the king. And then in verses 8 through 12, that strength of the Lord is manifested in the Lord's destruction of his enemies. So it's clear from the first and last verses that the purpose is to praise the Lord for what he has done for and through this king of Israel. Then, just inside of that first and last verse, 
we find two more sections, as we've already noted, each five verses each, each giving a reason for praising the Lord. That first one in verses two through six mentions the Lord's exaltation of the king as the reason for praise. And the second, in verses eight through 12, mentions the Lord's destruction of his enemies as the reason for praise. And then right in the middle, we find verse seven, for the king trusts in the Lord and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. So at the center, at the core of all this, is number one, the king's trust in the Lord, and number two, the Lord's loving kindness, his mercy, his grace, his steadfast love. And this pair is the center in this psalm from which everything else is flowing. Flowing out from this beautiful pair of the Lord's gracious loving kindness to the king, and the king's trust in the Lord is the Lord's exaltation of the king and the Lord's destruction of his enemies. And this exaltation of the king and destruction of the enemies results in the exaltation of the Lord. And, uh, sorry, as both the king and people praise him for it. So, two simple takeaways from this psalm. Number one, this combination of the Lord's undeserved loving kindness and man's trust in the Lord is and always has been central to our interaction with the Lord our trusting him and his loving kindness displayed toward us. And we need to cultivate a trust in the Lord and a dependence on his loving kindness. Also, what might seem like an isolated event here in Israel's history being celebrated in this psalm is in fact a recurring theme throughout history. The glory of the Lord covers the face of the earth as his dominion extends through his vice-regents, as they work in joyful, trusting submission to him. It's a recurring theme throughout salvation history, and this is simply one installment of it. And we should rejoice that although the Davidic kings in Israel's history uh, extended that that rule of the Lord um, to varying degrees, the ultimate Davidic king has come, who has begun to complete this task of extending the Lord's reign over all the earth at his first coming, and we'll complete that process at his second coming. So we can trust the Lord, we can praise him, and we can put our hope in him, as this psalm calls us to. All right, with that, let's go ahead and turn to our book, Grace and Granite book. During the past two weeks, we've reviewed the foundational convictions And with that review complete, we're now going to pick up where we left off in May, starting with series 13, which is pretty far toward the back. Between now and at least the end of the year, though we might go beyond that, uh, we'll be considering various aspects of the church. The the doctrine of the church or teaching of the church is often called ecclesiology. Um, Ecclesia would be the word for the church in the New Testament. And then, obviously, ology refers to a study of. So ecclesiology might initially sound like a big word, but it's pretty simple, just the study of the church. And this morning, we're going to be starting with study one of series 13, which begins on page 241. It is entitled, Which Church is God's Will for Me? Now, this study is not structured like the others, as you can see. Uh, Most of them have like an outline format that's easy to talk through. This one's more of an article um, to be read. And it explains three non-negotiable realities that will be present in the kind of church God wants you to go to. Three non-negotiable realities that will be present in the kind of church God wants you to go to. And he's going to introduce these three realities on the first two pages, and then on the third page, launch into the first of those realities. We're going to start into that first reality next Tuesday, um, but today I want us just to focus on the lead-up to that as as these first two pages introduce these non-negotiable realities of a church that we should be attending. So before we begin these next several 
months of studying the church, let's just take a step back and just consider what's the big deal? Why spend time thinking about what the church is? Why does the church matter? Why is the church important? When it comes to how we view events, the world, things around us, there's always a lens that tells us sort of what's center stage and what's not. Um, you think about how a, a, a play unfolds on the stage and all different kinds of tools or tricks can be used to help draw your attention to certain places, but obviously lighting is one of those, right? So lights go down, light comes back on, and boom, it's over here. And now your attention's here, and this suddenly seems to be center stage. It may not actually be center stage, but it's, that's where all the attention is. And then that can all shift over here, and that becomes the center. And uh, whether it's a world history textbooks, whether it's the news, whether it's Time Magazine, whatever it is that you might be reading, it's all shedding light in certain areas, right? But from God's perspective, from the perspective of all of the heavenly beings, and really from just the perspective of reality, what's center in world history, from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, is Christ building his what? His church, that is what's at center stage. And everything else is on the periphery of that, on the edge of the stage, just simply serving as context for the Lord building his church. World wars, global pandemics, economic collapse, these are just context operating at the edge of that stage, the center of which is Christ building his church. The Christ building his church through evangelism and edification as believers share the gospel. And the Lord who spoke all things into existence, the Lord who raised Christ from the dead, as you're sharing the gospel gives life to someone's heart and they're able to trust and believe Christ. And then they come into the church, they're baptized into the church and they're built up and edified. And built up and edified, not just in some abstract sense, but as you, you men, use your gifts to, to be serving the church. As you speak the truth one to another. Sometimes it means rebuking one another. Sometimes it means encouraging one another. It means reminding one another of just the truths that we know, but which, of which we need to be reminded. And the church is edified. The church is built up into maturity. And that which is at the center stage of all of history goes forward. Take your Bibles and turn to uh, Ephesians 3. If there's any book in the New Testament that is crucial for understanding the church, it's Ephesians. So look at Ephesians chapter 3. particularly look at verse 10, but let me start back in verse 8. Paul says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. And then notice verse 10. So that the manifold, the, the multifaceted, multi-sided wisdom of God might now be made known, God's wisdom now being made known by what means? Through the church. And who's he making this known to? This is wisdom through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Wow. The Lord does that. He makes known his wisdom through the church, something which can sometimes seem so peripheral in the world, and yet, in God's purposes, is at the center of what he's doing. Not only that God would spare his wrath, spare us from his wrath, what a privilege, a, a wrath which we so deserve, but that we would get to participate in this beautiful thing called the church, the body of Christ on earth, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Bride of Christ. 
And not only are we included in some passive sense in that church, but each and every one of us as members of a local church participate actively as God's choice instruments in building his church. And I say choice instruments. We might not always feel like God's choice instruments, but he chooses to build his church through people like us as we're being slowly, incrementally transformed using the gifts he gives us. We are, in that way, his choice instruments in building his church. And he's using us to build his church as he saves men and women with the gospel. That sounds nice and abstract, but think about it specifically. The gospel as it rolls off your tongue, the same power that spoke all things into existence, operates and gives life to a dead soul that they might respond and believe. He's using you and you're actively involved in the building of that church as he matures and strengthens his church. As you use your gifts, as you speak the truth to each other, as you get up extra early and pick up and bring coffee so that your brothers can stay awake and hear and be built up by the truth. So I want to appeal to you as we spend time talking about the marks of a true church over the next several months, as we talk about the importance of the Word of God in the life of the church, as we talk about the vital necessity of qualified elders to be leading the church, as we talk about church membership, and as we talk about church discipline, don't get lost in the details. Don't lose sight of the glorious realities. Realize that not only is this church we're studying such a beautiful thing, not only is it tremendously important, but realize that if you were to be a faithful part of the church, we need to understand this. So when we say church, what do we mean? What are the various ways we might use that word? What does church in our use of the word refer to? Go ahead, Bobby. The elect. So basically, like, people might call it the invisible church, the universal church, right? All, all the genuine believers globally. Yes. That's an excellent one. That would be one true one, the universal church, all believers. What's another way we use that word? The local church. So this would be a particular group of professing believers. So when we talk about that first category, we're talking about it's, it's limited to genuine believers, right? We move to local church. Now there's going to be some mixture. There's going to be it's professing believers, but not everyone's going to actually be a believer. Um, and it's those who gather together in a particular place. Not just all the believers in a particular city or particular state, but those who regularly gather together in a particular area. Excellent. What's another one? A building. That's another way we use it. Yeah. Yeah, I've sometimes just noting that confusion, right? We often say it's not the building, but yet we continue to use the word to refer to the building, just contributing to the very confusion we have to come back and correct. I've often thought about this Puritan way of referring to the meeting place, right? Um, it seems kind of clumsy, though. I can imagine myself telling my wife, bye, I'm going to the meeting place. Um, but it might help, right, in the long term, if we refer to it that way, to remind us, no, the building is not the church. It's the place where the church meets. But good, that's right. A building. And, and there's two other ones, two other ways we regularly use the word church. Sometimes the denomination, right, the Presbyterian church. The Lutheran church, that's another way we use the word church. And finally, uh, just the professing believers in a particular region. We might refer to the church in America, the church in the West, the church in China. So basically five different ways I think we tend to use church in our language. There's basically two of those that the, the New Testament regularly uses. For one thing, the church... Uh, the, the New Testament speaks of the universal church, all believers. Let me just give you two examples. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, Paul writes, And he put all things under, sorry, let me explain these pronouns. He, God the Father, put all things under his, God the Son's, feet, and gave him, God the Son, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's an example of this universal church, referring to all believers. Colossians 1.18 would be another. And he is the head of the body, 
the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So this is just referring to all believers around the world at all times. But far more often, the New Testament speaks of local churches, professing believers who regularly gather together in a particular location. I'll give you some examples of this. First, we'll look at some that um, it's referring to a local church in a particular city. So, Romans 16.1, Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kincraeye. Or, 1 Corinthians 1.2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. These would all be familiar ways of referring to a local church. 2 Corinthians 1.2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth. Or Colossians 4.16, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. See, in each case, this is a local group of believers who are gathering together regularly in that area. And we can continue on. There's 1 Thessalonians 1.1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. It says the same thing in, at the beginning of 2 Thessalonians. But now notice... When he moves to referring not just to the churches in a particular city, but to the churches in a region, Paul doesn't continue using the singular. Now he refers to them in the plural. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 16.1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia. The churches of Galatia, which be Galatia, a region in what's modern-day Turkey, right? In the center of modern-day Turkey. But notice now, when, when they're in a region broader than a city such that they can't regularly gather together, they're, they're actually viewed as independent uh, congregations, churches, because that gathering together regularly, being able to hold one another accountable, assemble, is a crucial part of being a local church. So he moves to the plural now. And we can see this continue... Um, 1 Corinthians 16, 19, the churches of Asia send you greetings. 2 Corinthians 8, 1, where he refers to the churches of Macedonia. Again, in Galatians 1, 2, he says he's writing to the churches of Galatia. Or he refers to the churches of Judea in Galatians 1, 22. So the point is, here we see a number of examples of the church as a particular local church. Um, And I'm trying to emphasize here that when we get above the level of the city, such as to the level of a region, the churches are referred to in the plural. And from this, we see that Paul has in mind local churches, that is, ones that regularly gather together. All the believers in a particular city can assemble regularly, and as such, they constitute a single church under one group of elders. But each of these are separate churches. As we see when we move to the level of the region, and Paul switches to the plural. Also, notice that Paul calls each of these the church, right? He doesn't say, he says, the church in Corinth, not merely the portion of the church which assembles in Corinth. So in each case, the whole church is viewed there. That This body here at Timberlake is the body of Christ as known by us and as we participate in it. The consistent assumption throughout the New Testament is that the universal church is always manifested and experienced in local churches. The idea that someone would profess to belong to the universal church without that being realized through active participation as a member in a local church is simply incomprehensible in the New Testament. When you think of your participation in the church, you should always think of it in relation to your active involvement in a local church. So although the the term church is used in a variety of ways in contemporary usage, and although it's used in both this universal sense and in a local sense in the New Testament, um, in practical day-in and day-out life in the church, it's primarily this local church aspect that we're concerned with. Um, That's that's the church as we know it, as it gathers together in a particular place and we, we mingle with those people, we commit to those people. So let's get back to the study. Let's jump into this article here. I just want to set us up there by thinking more broadly about what is the church and why it matters, why we should have an interest in understanding the church. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a good question, and I'm not sure I know exactly the answer. We obviously see references to the church that gathers in so-and-so's house. Um, is that a subset of the church in that city, or is that just where the church in that city happens to gather? Uh, so yeah, it's not entirely clear to me. Yeah, I do find it interesting, though, that Paul does move to the plural when he goes beyond a city where they can no longer gather. So there is some sense in which he believes within that city they function as one church in a way they don't when they're no longer able to regularly be together. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. To be in a, in, a, in a locality where you could practically minister to the people of that body. Yeah, I think that. that difficulty of understanding the first century, exactly what that looked like, is there. It's present, trying to get back to that based upon what we have. Um, there certainly is a dimension, though, in which when we talk specifically about what Paul refers to as a church, um, it does seem as though we've got to keep that maybe a bit distinct from certain groups that might gather sometimes in a house. Does that make sense? Um, they might belong to a larger church under one body of elders, which would be one church. So I think there's just some complications there uh, that I, I haven't thought entirely through. Yeah, good question, though, Bobby. Okay, so let's begin by considering the question with which John Anderson begins. Now, I'm not just going to read through this because it's like an article, so it's not necessarily conducive for teaching through, but I'd encourage you to go back and at least read these first two pages. But I'm going to kind of work through the material so when you read it, it won't seem unfamiliar to you. But he gives basically a scenario, but from the perspective of a pastor, with someone asking him, basically, what church should I be going to? Um, is this church I'm in a good place for me? But most of us aren't pastors, so I'm just going to present it in a, from a perspective that may be a little more familiar to us. Imagine you're going to your mailbox, and you see your neighbor over in his yard, and uh, he's, he's motioning, gesturing for you to come over and talk to him, and so you guys meet at the property line, and he begins explaining to you that, uh, well, let me back up. First, you know he's, he's a professing believer, and you have every reason to believe he's a genuine believer. Um, and he just begins telling you that there are some problems going on at his church, and he's not sure he should stay there. And although he might not ask it, he, uh, he clearly wants some input from you, some counsel. So what do you tell him? Do you start asking lots of questions? Right? There, there'd be lots of data you'd want to collect before you try to give some input. And yet, how, much, how many questions and how much info can you possibly gather as you're standing there at the property line with your mail in hand? Um, on the other hand, you could get, dive in and you know, begin getting into the weeds, trying to understand all the details, 
have some meetings mediating between him and his pastor, whatever the other issues are. And in this article, John Anderson basically explains how this can get very messy as you're trying to get in, in the midst of these details and you just, you'll never know all of it. Even if you could gather all the info from him, ask him lots and lots of questions, you've still only heard one side of it, right? Foolish is the man who hears one side of a story and then thinks he understands the whole and renders a judgment. So it really is difficult, but the path recommended, the path that John Anderson lays out in this article is for us not to focus on trying to get into the details, but just to set out what are the essential marks of a true church. Once we know that, then we can simply compare any church to that. And if it's a true church, if it has these marks, then it's not necessarily going to be destructive for that believer to stay there. And it is somewhat weighty if you think about it. On the one hand, people regularly gripe about churches, and it seems like just trite, run-of-the-mill types of stuff. But on, on the one hand, if someone is genuinely in a good church, and they're just a person who's prone to complain, whether for selfishness or otherwise, it's not helpful at all to encourage them to leave their church, to, to cement that perspective in them. They're just going to go on as a very selfish person, utilizing the church for their own ends, whatever they want, and go somewhere else and cause problems at another church. They need to stay there, especially if they're a genuine believer, and the Lord needs to work those things out in their heart in that context. On the other hand, there are plenty of churches that would profess to be a church, but in fact aren't really churches. Uh, they're just a gathering of professing believers, but they're, they're a false church. And there actually are genuine believers in some of those places. And it's good. We get an opportunity to help that person see that and to leave that and get themselves in a faithful church. So at the one level, we don't want to simply neglect this because it gets complicated. On the other hand, it is complicated, right? And there's a lot at stake. So all of that's kind of just a story that's setting us up to think deeply about what is, what are those marks of a true church? What has to be there? Notice the, uh, the top of page 242. He writes here, God tells us in his word precisely what his will is for his children. They will need to inform their minds with what Christ's church really is and submit to it in their heart and with their lives. If God is passionate about his people, and he is, if he loves his church, and he does, and if involvement in the church is important for edification, for strength, for unity, and for the maturity of his children, and it is, then we can be sure that a true knowledge of God in his word gives us everything we need to discern where God wants us to worship, serve, and be equipped. That's not almost like an overstatement. <laughs> so much confidence in that. The word of God is everything we need to be able to know if, this, if any church we're in is a good church, is a church we should be at. And yet I think he makes a very clear case that, yeah, this is something God's imminently concerned about, and he's going to give us what we need to know that. If we're finding ourselves saying, yeah, but this issue over here just isn't addressed, maybe it's because that's not a crucial thing, right? Uh, we could go after raise the, the typical things that have been raised for decades now, like drums, right? But there are plenty of other things today, like masks, vaccines, right? There's all kinds of things that we get all caught up in, and we're saying, oh, but because of this perspective, because they say this, this clearly can't be somewhere I should be, and yet the Bible's just, it's not getting into those things, because those are peripheral things, just like music or anything else that we've become used to thinking through and, and been, been more familiar with is but yet those are the things we often get so excited about and want to move from church to church over. And then he finishes that paragraph writing, God wants you to go to a church that has the following non-negotiable realities. Now, before we read those, let me introduce a distinction here that will help you avoid misunderstanding this list of three non-negotiable realities. This is a list of marks of a true church without which a church would be a, not a church at all, a false church. 
This is not a list of important signs of health in a church, meaning there's a lot more that could be said if you're looking at what makes for a healthy church as opposed to a true church that's merely not as healthy as it should be. To stick with a single metaphor, think in terms of life and death. There's a clear distinction between something that's alive and something that's dead. And there's one set of things you will look for to distinguish life from death. For example, a heartbeat, right? You can use a heartbeat. Is there a heartbeat? No, then it's probably dead. Is there a heartbeat? Yes, then it's alive. But the presence of a heartbeat alone doesn't tell me whether that alive thing is healthy or not, does it? Obviously, it's healthy enough to be alive, but that's all it really tells me. I'd have to look at other metrics, other ways of measuring health to be able to know how healthy it is. These tests here aren't the way of knowing how healthy something is. It's simply a way of knowing whether that's a true church or not. I think that's helpful to recognize because, and this is where the, the wisdom comes in in helping your neighbor in our, our scenario here. On the one hand, there's no church that's perfect. And we don't simply show up to a church looking for a perfect church. We, we have a responsibility to help that church grow towards health, right? So we should all expect that wherever we are at any point in our lives, we will be in churches that fall short of God's ideal. And we are not mere spectators, you know, kind of raising the scorecard. We have, a, we have a responsibility on the last day for the health of that church in part. There are certain things we can't control. The Lord's appointed elders over that church and certain things they're responsible for, and we need to submit to that. But we have a certain measure of responsibility for the health of that church. So we don't want to begin thinking that if any church is less healthy than it ideally could be or should be, that it's time for us to move on to somewhere else. And it's best to stick there and serve and do your part using your gifts to strengthen that church. Um, on the other hand, there are churches that maybe they are true churches, and yet they're just extremely weak, and that's been a consistent pattern. And just their convictions, their practices, um, the, just the, the ruts they're in, the way they operate is going to continue to contribute to just a very sickly nature and there might be another church around the corner that's healthy, not, not measured in terms of all the parking spots being full, but because the people there are growing, they're being matured, they're looking more like Christ. And it might be appropriate for someone to move from this sickly church that doesn't seem as though the leadership is leading in a good direction that will help it grow more healthy, even if we aren't yet ready to say it's a, not a church at all. But it might be helpful for someone to leave that and move to a church that is on the right trajectory towards health. Can you see the, the difficulty there? A lot of wisdom is needed. You don't want to encourage someone to leave a place where they should just stick it out and serve and try to help that church grow into greater maturity. And on the other hand, sometimes it is a good idea for someone uh, to make that change. Keep in mind, in all of this, this whole kind of example here is not really to make you guys excellent at being able to help your neighbors make these decisions as much as to introduce us and get us thinking about what is required in a church? What are we looking for? What are those essential features? So, look at the list, page 242, right there in the middle of the page. He's going to give in two different forms. First, um, in a more complex form, and then stated more simply. So first, number one, God's voice is the only one heard in the church. So the first mark of a true church, God's voice is the only one heard in the church. Number two, qualified men lead the church. Qualified men lead the church. And number three, kingdom membership is manifested in church membership. Kingdom man, uh, membership is manifested in church membership. Or, more simply stated, when he said the first non-negotiable reality is God's voice is the only one heard in the church, he then simplifies that and says essentially that means preaching of the word. When, when it comes time to teach and to preach, it's not simply the opinions of men that are preached. It's the word of God that's preached. God's voice is heard. God's instruction for the church is what's being given to his people. So that's the first non-negotiable reality. And that's what we'll spend time looking at next Tuesday. The second one, qualified men lead the church, or stated more simply, qualified leadership. So this is going to be referring to what should you be looking for in elders, overseers, pastors who lead a church? What kind of men should they be? 
People have various opinions about what that means for, for those men to be qualified, and yet the Word of God speaks directly to that. It tells us what needs to be there. And so we're going to look at that. And then the third non-negotiable reality, kingdom membership is manifested in church membership, or stated more simply, church discipline. So notice that kingdom membership, that's referring to kind of what Bobby was referring to initially with the, the invisible church or the universal church, which we said consists only of those who are genuinely believers. But then the visible church, the local church, has hopefully, the, the majority are genuine believers, but there will be some, almost inevitably, who aren't genuine believers, but who are professing. But what he's trying to refer to here is we want the local church membership as closely as possible to represent that universal church membership. Meaning, we don't want to be keeping people outside of the church who really do belong in God's church. They really are part of the universal church. And the reverse, which is what he's focusing on here with church discipline, we don't want to be having people in the church who don't really belong to the church. When someone's baptized, it's, that's the, the way in which they're kind of brought into the church. And ideally, if those people continue to prove that they genuinely belong to the church through fruit in their lives, then they stay there and they persevere until Christ returns or they die. But if they begin to demonstrate through their life, through bad fruit, that they really aren't converted, that they really don't belong to the universal church, the church has an obligation to remove them from its membership. They can't continue to both confuse them and the world around by suggesting that this person belongs to the universal church when they really don't. You guys track with me? So the whole issue here is as close as possible trying to line up those who belong to the universal church with those who belong to the local church and not having people in the local church who don't actually belong to the universal church. There's certainly people who will well disguise this for long periods of time even for their whole life, and themselves may be self-deceived. When I say well-disguised, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are knowingly deceiving people. They might be self-deceived. And our goal isn't to become, to start setting up these extra standards as though we know exactly what's going on in someone's heart. But there are clear things that Scripture says um, about patterns of walking in sin that reveal that we really have not been transformed. We haven't been converted. And when we begin to see those things, and when calls to repentance go unheeded, uh, we do have an obligation to act on that. So that's what we're going to address there. Now, this last portion here of the page, and just kind of going over to the very beginning of the next page, 243, essentially introduces um, kind of a caveat about this list, in which he essentially explains this list is what he understands to be the most relevant for American evangelicalism at this time in history. This is the most relevant list to distinguish a true church from a false church. But he basically says that this has temporal limitations. Um, and he, at another point, he says it has a limited shelf life. And what he's acknowledging here is something that might initially sound a bit strange to us, uh, when you hear the word contextualization, what do you think? Do you think good or bad? Go ahead. Yeah, this is, good. this is helpful. Good, bad. We've got difference of opinions. And quite frankly, I think the answer is it can be good or bad. Depends how you're using it. What's the purpose? Why are we contextualizing? On the one hand, we can be contextualizing by taking the truth of the word of God and making it more easily accepted by unregenerate people within a culture, right? Where where it confronts, we want to kind of shave off the rough edges so that people don't choke on that. The other way, that that would be a bad way, right? Where the word of, where God has spoken, we're sort of silencing him. Gagging him, we might say. On the other hand, there can be an appropriate contextualization, which is another form of what we might call application. We're taking the Word of God and trying to make sure that it lands on people in a particular historical setting with its full force. This is something that every good pastor does. As I've talked to people about this um, over the past couple years, I've often mentioned John Piper. I think part of John Piper's powerful preaching is his ability to do this. He gets after certain things in our culture, ways that 
we have become sort of syncretized. We've begun to look more like the world and think it's simply a part of Christianity, like the whole retirement mindset. You know, he's picked up on walking along the seashore and collecting seashells and just noticed, like, that's not Christianity. That's just Americanism. That's part of just this pagan worldview that's infiltrated Christianity. We just swallow it whole and think that that's part of how we should live. And he's helpfully contextualized, right? He's seen how other cultures may not struggle with that, but this one does. Let me apply the word of God there. And the point is, it's made sure that the voice of God is heard as clearly as possible in a particular culture. The other form of contextualization, the negative side, begins to actually silence some of those things so that no one's offended. See what I'm saying? Does that make sense, those differences? Okay. So, on the one hand, what's what John Anderson is explaining here, that this list of non-negotiable realities could change depending upon where you are, might sound, what does he mean by that? If if they're non-negotiable realities, surely they should be true everywhere around the globe and at all times. But he's just noting that whenever we do any sort of theology, systematic theology, we're always doing it in a particular context, and that's good. If all we ever did was sit up and read our Bibles to, to people, We would be failing to do all that we're called to do. We need to help people see what that looks like in that setting. One of the ways we simply do this is modeling, right? We we figure out what it looks like to walk faithfully in our context, and then we bring others around us who are growing in the faith, and they watch how we do that, and they see what it looks like to contextualize the gospel in that setting. So this is just simply doing what we need to do. That's what systematic theology is. There's particular issues that arise in a particular culture, There are new issues arising in our own culture, maybe not ultimately new, but at least more newer within the past couple generations, and we need to think about how exactly does the Word of God address those things. We have a responsibility to address those things. Not all of them, but certain ones where the Word of God does address it, we should be doing that. So he's just simply saying that there are things today that merit these three marks. But he notes that even... 500 years ago, during the Reformation, there were some different marks. One of the ones in particular, he notes, was a proper administration of the Lord's Supper. And this is really quite consistent even in the creeds of the early Protestant church, where a right preaching of the Word of God and a right administration of the sacraments, of the the, the Lord's Supper and baptism, the ordinances, is regularly put forward as being the, the true marks. So he notes like that, that's been very true, and yet he explains that in our own context, within American evangelicalism, heretical explanations and uses of, say, the Lord's Supper aren't too common. People may not give it the full weight it deserves. There might be other ways we might complain that we need to be more careful in how we practice baptism in the Lord's Supper, but there aren't these massive heresies tied in with it like there was in the Roman Catholic Church. And like Pastor Farrell explained to us on Sunday, that John Rogers was confronting. So in their day, that was critical to address that. In their day, though, he notes, the Roman Catholic Church had no hesitation to exercise church discipline. And they didn't simply put you out of the church, they put you out of the world, right? They took your life. So he says that wasn't an issue at that time. Plenty of Protestant bishops, simply because they were outside the Catholic Church, were being executed. But... That is an issue today. People not wanting to make sure there's an alignment there, wanting to allow people all day long, just because they're happy to be in the church, even if it's pretty clear they don't actually belong to the universal church, allowing them to remain in the visible local assembly. And so that's why he's saying I'm drawing out this uh, mark here. Let me just kind of summarize some of these two kinds of contextualization. Attempting to make sure the word of God will have the maximum transformational impact on, on a particular people in a particular culture is a good form of contextualization. And that's what John's trying to do here with this list and picking these particular three marks. On the other hand, any attempts to reduce the measure of confrontation or transformational impact that the Word of God has on a culture would be a bad form of contextualization. And that's not what John's trying to do here. What do you think? Questions? Does that raise any confusion in your mind? Is that clear? All right. Yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah, so that's. Yeah, yeah. What's your name? Jonathan. Yeah. So if I understood you correctly, what he's saying is, why not just give a complete list of everything that should be there in the particular church, right? The, the non-negotiables. And then you could highlight in any particular time or place that these are the ones which are most relevant now, that are being most clearly challenged. Is that a fair representation? Um, and that way, at least you can see the, the whole list of non-negotiables. And I think... I'm actually confident John would say, yes, the proper administration of Lord's Supper, right, which is something that's not on his list, is a non-negotiable. And so essentially he would affirm what you're saying. He just wants to make sure that you don't lose the pointedness of the ones we need to hear by seeing a long list of ones that aren't too relevant right now. I think that's how he'd probably explain it. I think that makes sense to me. But yeah, there certainly are other things that would be important. Go ahead. Yeah. Let me just clarify there then. Um, it's not to say that any of these wouldn't be non-negotiables in another context. So church discipline is always a non-negotiable. It's just in a particular context, it may not need to be said. Um, let's take a look at our own culture. You could look at sections of systematic theologies about anthropology, and there may not be long treatments 100 years ago about marriage being between a man and a woman. It simply didn't necessarily need to be said, right? It was somewhat assumed. But now, that certainly needs to be said, right? So we've got to articulate that. And it's not to say that was never a non-negotiable. It's just to say that if we try to state everything, there's going to be volumes that we'd have to write. Our responsibility isn't necessarily to apply the Word of God to every potential situation. It's to apply it within our context. Is that helpful, Jonathan? Yes. Okay. Any other thoughts or questions? Yeah, go ahead, Bobby. What you're, what you're noting, though, is that all of those churches, even if it's less, less formal, there's still a recognized group of people who belong within that local assembly. I would say that's all that's required. If the way that works itself out in a particular location looks like a more formal role, in either case, there's really a role, right? It's just a matter of like how formally it's conducted. And so I do think there would be a danger if we begin to conduct that formal formal side of it in such a way that it begins to look quite a bit different than what the informal membership looks like, right? And it's part of where the, the church discipline comes in, to try to keep those as closely aligned as possible. Yeah. Because obviously you could I think of a situation where you could have someone who, they're a member of a church, but they don't at all act like a member, they aren't at all involved, they aren't at all committed, they aren't doing all those things, the one and others, all the things we would say constitute church membership, right? But yet they're a member, you could have someone else who then isn't technically a member, but they're doing all the one another's, everything that says that, that is a part of true church membership. We would want, if we're going to exercise church membership faithfully, to want to collapse the, the, the degree of difference there. Does that make sense? So as closely as possible, the people who are really on our formal role actually the people who are functioning like members. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yep. They, they assume that it happens, that you become, uh, as a matter of fact, you can look at Acts 2, it talks about the people that believed and were baptized, they 
they still do those things. If you were yeah. part of that fellowship because you were saved, you were baptized, you became a part of that fellowship, this is gospel. When out, spread, uh, in, you, know, you get Paul preaching or uh, in the various cities, people that were saved, baptized, were part of that fellowship. No formality as to how that took place. That Correct. Preferential. One way of working it out. Yeah. Yeah. An analogy that comes to my mind was just having recently lived for a couple years in in Africa. They don't necessarily have like their careful way of keeping track of their cattle, right? But you can get, I can guarantee you that every one of those Malawians knew which cattle were theirs and how many they had at any given time. They had ways of keeping track of it, even just mentally. They knew which ones were theirs. And they might do things differently than we would. We want a list, right? Here are them. We've got a number assigned to each one, maybe a tag in its ear. They know by the spots on it, you know, or whatever. Um, they, the point is they're still tracking with it. And the fact that we do it differently is just completely a neutral thing. The point is they're tracking what's there. Yep. Good. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I think and I'm sure Bobby would affirm this, that whatever you do, whatever that membership looks like, you've got to be able to do church discipline, right? Um, you've got to be able to do that. So if you don't have like a formal role, you still know who's there and you're certainly going to still remove them. Um, in our own context, even just because of litigation, it can often be helpful to have people say, yes, I agree to become a part of this, and I know what the rules are, what the expectations are, and then if they don't do that, then you kind of have a basis for having brought this before the church and removing them. So. But the point is, regardless, yeah, faithfulness would look like being able to remove someone from membership. Yep. All right, good. Well, thanks for the interaction. Um, I hope that's helpful in instructing us, but I also hope that this time spent together this morning and the, the wee hours of the morning are encouraging us just to love the church more, to want to be involved, to want to give ourselves. There are so many things that we kind of identify ourselves with, our hobbies, our professions, and may, at the top of the list of things that we, we kind of think of ourselves as, be a church member. And specifically, insofar as we talk about both the universal church, but manifest in a local church right here, right now, I am a member of Timberlake Baptist Church. This is where I give my time and my energy and work hard to see this body grow in maturity. Uh, may that be a significant part of how we think about ourselves, not an afterthought on Sunday mornings when we're thinking about where we're going to drive our car from the garage to. All right, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you. Uh, <laughs> we can't necessarily affirm that we, we understand all of the aspects of the wisdom, your wisdom being displayed through us, and yet we trust you with that, um, and we want to seek to be faithful. Um, we do thank you for your wonderful grace toward us, and may even as we meditate upon the, the huge blessings poured out upon us, the, the way you've seated us in the heavenly places and exalted us, um, just be motivations to endure difficulties. Um, I pray, Lord, for us as a group of men at this church that we would grow in our both understanding of your church here and what you expect for it, but also in our love for it, that it wouldn't simply be an understanding that it has no effect in our lives, but that would um, be put into practice as we labor and pour ourselves with great joy into serving this church. I pray for these men now as they leave here and go to whatever they have going on today. Pray that you would keep them safe and that you would just be maturing them by your grace through the events of the day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.